0: I'm, uh, I'm glad to be with you today. I want to thank those willing servants who gave of their time, blood, sweat, and tears, and uh, labored here last week. Um, it was just really thrilling for me. Uh, this church has dozens of people who are very good at caring for, teaching, and guiding children. And that is a great repository. And so I'm very thankful for that. If you have your scriptures, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to begin a uh, mini-series this week and next on Jeremiah 29. I think it's one of those great chapters that has so much to say to us as believers living in Westerlo or surrounding areas, New York, in the year of our Lord, 2017. Let me read for you Jeremiah 29, just verses 1 to 10 today. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 10. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon This happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elessa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, you got all those names? King of Judah, sent to Babylon, to to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have. at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. This is God's word. Father, thank you for assembling us. Thank you for the joy of um, singing as loud as we'd like, carrying our Bibles, learning, listening, caring and loving each other. Father, I pray that you would come and supply insight and wisdom. I pray for a quickening. I pray that you would affect our affections and our desires. Father, I pray that we would hear from you, the living Lord. Help me, Lord God, to be a help and not a hindrance to your people. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts and souls. It's been a difficult week for some of your people and there's weariness and they're tired. And so, Father, I pray for a fresh infusion of strength and grace. Father, I pray now that as we look at this perfect law of liberty that sets us free and gives us um, liberty, Father, I pray that we would find fresh delight in you. And we ask all of this through the name of the one who has loved, who has loved us first and best, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Hope I'm not doing that. Okay, not a problem. Listen, I know you folks think I'm like a Pilgrim's Progress Freak already, but I have one more illustration for you. John Bunyan writes from his prison cell in Bedford, England. That's where he devotes this classical allegorical work, Pilgrim's Progress, and he devotes it to the pilgrim Christian lifestyle. And uh, it is, um, I, I understand, the history's second bestseller behind the Bible. And it's gloriously called progress, pilgrims or travelers' progress. One of the great truths of the Christian life is that we have a home beyond this world, that we're travelers, that we're wayfarers, that we're pilgrims. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, says, I have gone to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also." for years the church of Jesus Christ has sung truths that remind us of this reality. While we walk this pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow nor a sigh. Or who could forget this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The word for pilgrim literally means through-lander. And that's a fabulous concept for us as Christians to remember and reflect on. The idea is is that we're moving through. God's word says in the songbook of scripture, blessed are those, happy are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And in coming to Jeremiah 29, we come to a letter that is written to a collection of people who are far from home they are not living where they will finally live. They are in fact exiles. In, in, in this manner, we realize that there's a similarity because we're living away from home on a certain level. Um, I, I feel this keenly because for 30 years I lived as a landed immigrant in the nation of Canada. Now I maintained my American citizenship there for 30 years But that was not really where my citizenship was derived from. And so there were certain rules and regulations that we had to obey. We didn't talk about politics. We didn't vote. We were not intimately involved in that scheme because that was not our citizenship. So you recognize that the people of God, the exiles of the now destroyed Jerusalem, are living far from home. And this letter is written to them to provide for them instructions as to how it is that they live far from home. Let me begin with a little bit of background here because in Bible study, context is critical. The prophet Jeremiah has been weeping for the wayward. In fact, his ministry will stretch over four decades. And he will cry out to the people of God, stop being idolatrous. Stop running away from God. Stop rejecting his laws. Stop disobeying him and and trespassing against the moral code that he supplied you with. And year after year after year, God's people said, no, we're doing our own thing. Until finally, the boom of God's justice falls. And in 597 BC, Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. And it was a horrific siege. There were things going on inside the city that were just unspeakable. Things like cannibalism and disease and horrific starvation and horrific events occurring there. It was an excruciating siege. The walls of the city are broken down. The temple is sacked and destroyed and people are slaughtered. Israel is judged finally for their sin. Having rejected God's call, they are now reaping a horrific whirlwind. And then, after 597, the deportations begin. There are at least three main deportations where people are carried away to foreign terrain. Jews are carried away to the land of Babylon. And in Jeremiah, there's an interesting transition because what had been up to this point words of Of uh, condemnation and words of impending doom and impending judgment you realize that in Jeremiah 29 all of a sudden God is giving to his prophet his mouthpiece Jeremiah a new word and the word is instruction and there's an element of comfort and there's an element of grace and ease in this now that the boom has fallen now that God's people are now in the woodshed if you will in terms of being disciplined God doesn't leave his people without direction In wrath, he remembers mercy, and there's mercy here for God's people because though now they're far from home, he has insight and direction in terms of how they are to live. North Carolina farm boy turned evangelist, Vance Havner, I think says it well as we connect with this pilgrimage in this land of exile. He says, we aren't citizens of earth going to heaven. We're citizens of heaven passing through the world. And so the story of exile, if you will, for Israel, is not a story that we're unfamiliar with. If, if God was, it was going to sort of keep us safe and take us out of this world, as soon as someone came to know Christ as Savior, we'd be gone. He'd catch us away. But he leaves us here. And he intentionally leaves us here as citizens of heaven to effect change. And that is God's plan. And in Jeremiah 29, we, we have this instruction given to people far from home. And it is interesting because there's a relevancy between 6th century BC Jewish exiles and 21st century American Christians because we're kind of like them far from home. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how do we then live and I think he offers to us a great springboard into this letter from home because we ask ourselves the question, well, how do we live? How do we live being here, if you will, on enemy terrain in a world mined by the enemy of our souls? How, how do we safely navigate our way through life here on earth? Well, I think there are at least four points that verses 1 to 10 leave us with, and they help us mightily. Just as I pray that they helped as well those that initially heard them. But what does the pilgrim life look like? Remember this is an ancient letter. Jeremiah the weeping prophet sends to those now back in Babylon struggling with a brand new situation, brand new culture, literally dropped in the midst of a pagan culture. What what do we learn from them as we read over their shoulder? First this, Pilgrim living demands spiritual clarity. One of the things that's important for us as Christians to remember is that what's going on in the world has a spiritual component to it. Notice with me again verse 4. In verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, you read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, Next words are highly instructive. Whom I caused to be carried away. I caused it. I caused it. You're in Babylon because of me, the great I am, the sovereign king. This is not bad juju. This is not coincidence, all right, as the kids would say. This is because I caused it. I called to you and called to you and loved you and demanded that you change direction, but you headed towards the precipice, and I have caused you to be carried away. One of the critical truths here that the exiles then and the pilgrims now need to understand is simply this. We need to stop finding physical answers for spiritual issues. That demands spiritual clarity. That demands a new way of seeing. Sometimes, don't we do this? I know I do. I like to define what's going on in the world in purely physical terms. And even as we look at our nation, our surrounding communities and towns and townships, sometimes we make all of those issues physical. Oh, it's it's economic. Oh, it's political. Oh, it's military. Oh, it's financial. Oh, it's social. Dear ones, is it not possible that the Pilgrim mindset demands that we have spiritual eyes to see? God had caused his people to be carried away. We love to explain away our dilemmas with surface answers, never considering spiritual implications to our pilgrimage. I have an illustration for you from the book True Grit, or the movie, if you're not a book person. Do you, ever, do you remember the, the character Tom Chaney? Fascinating guy. He's the guy that kills Mattie's dad. And if you, if you remember the movie, if you remember the character, you know that he keeps saying things like this. Nothing works out for me. Everything's against me. Why is this happening to me? I want to say, well, Tom, it's because you're a murderer, a liar and a thief. But in his mind, he's unable to see that this is a moral issue. We recognize that as pilgrims, this what's going on in this pilgrim passage and pilgrim pathway has spiritual implications. Skipping down in the passage in verses 8 and 9, God is calling for the nation to maintain a biblical integrity and listen to God's mouthpiece and God's mouthpiece alone. Apparently what was happening in this context is that there were some false prophets that, were, that, that raised themselves up, that put pleasant words in their mouth, and they said things like this. You know what? This exile is not going to be very long. God is going to come back. He's going to crush the might of Babylon. And in about a year or two, you're going home. So don't sweat it. And what God says through his actual and authentic mouthpiece, Jeremiah, is get ready for the long haul. This is going to be a long stay away from home. We take away from that, though, the necessity of hearing from God and not from the competing voices around us, On a practical level, this means for us as believers that we need more theology and less therapy. As the popular Christian song says, or it used to be years ago, stop asking Oprah what to do. And while we appreciate some of Dr. Phil's insights and things like that, we realize that our feelings and our perceptions of reality, if that is our only positioning system, will demand that we stay in the wilderness, never really wondering, why is this happening to me? fail to realize that there is a great and glorious God that is ordering and arranging. The challenge for us is to return to it is written instead of it is made up or it is imagined or it is felt. Some of you probably have this witty statement in your Bibles. I know I did growing up. It said something like this. This Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this Bible. That's not just some tacky cliche. That's eternal truth. Who else is going to answer the big questions of who am I and why am I here and how did I get here and where am I going? Where will you find answers to questions like that? Well, We find it in God's word. Pilgrim living demands spiritual clarity. Seek it out. Find from God truth about eternal realities. What source of truth would we have otherwise? And so as God transmits this message from home, he calls them to a spiritual understanding and a spiritual clarity. There's a a second principle that I think is helpful for us here from this passage. In verse 5, notice this with me. Pilgrim living demands practical stewardship. I tried to combine some of the truth that's being expressed there in that way, But you'll notice in verse 5 it says, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. And they're reminded how gloriously practical theology is. Now there is an element of mystery, glorious mystery to theology. But it's not all ethereal and dreamy. In fact, here it lands on the readers of this ancient letter. Here's what he says, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. You're going to be here for a while, so settle down, be industrious, make money, provide for yourself. If I was translating it into language that we understand. Now, for some of them that have been carried away, and if you had just witnessed your home literally being torn apart, if family and friends and neighbors had been slaughtered before your eyes, if you had seen the temple burned, if you'd seen the walls breached, if you'd seen the Babylonians come in and carry you off in chains to a foreign culture, would you, would you not be of the inclination just to sit down and cry and weep and give up? You can almost, you can almost, you can almost hear the song, um, Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to the garden to eat worms. That, that would be their song. I mean, they hang up their harps on the willow trees, right? But here's this letter from home, and it stirs up their spirits. And God says, Don't go to the garden, eat worms, grow stuff. Grow stuff? Build a home here in the midst of this pagan culture? That's the word. It's practical, it involves stewardship, it involves an entrepreneurial spirit, it involves industry and energy. Be creative make money. Don't assume the Babylonians will care for you. If you're able to get a job, keep a job, provide for yourselves. Very, very practical. Jesus taught in a parable in Luke 19 verse 13. He instructed his followers this way when he says, do business until I come. Labor is not the issue. Work is not the issue remember in the book of Genesis in the book of beginnings that God gives to Adam a job before the fall the job just becomes harder after the fall the reality is is that God has given to us tasks to do and it demands practical persevering stewardship Make this place where you are now living the best that it can be. Your home, your workplace, your property, your garden. This is a call to active stewardship. Be a believing entrepreneurial person. Now, we've all heard horror stories about people who have come to the book and they have determined that there's a time when Jesus is returning. And then they sell everything they have, and they sit outside of town in a white robe, and the world laughs at that. It's like what part of you won't know the time or the hour didn't you understand? We've all seen and heard stories like that. And yet we realize that God is calling us as Christian pilgrims that until he returns for us, we would labor and that even in our labor we would glorify the most Most high God. That we'd be great citizens and great work people and that sounds bad, workers, that we would in fact excel in the marketplace. Not for our own glory and honor's sake, but for his glory and honor's sake. You understand that with us as Christians, it's either the undertaker or the upper taker. That's how we exit stage left. And until he comes for us, it demands that we serve and love And are imaginative and disciplined and industrious. God is not against us owning things. He's against things owning us. God's word says godliness with contentment is great gain. Some of us need to reclaim the sanctified purpose for making money. We should be intentionally, economically, purposefully homesteading. So that's the second word to the pilgrims. He says you need spiritual clarity. God puts you here. He says, secondly, you need to live with a practical stewardship. Thirdly, this pilgrim living requires a healthy home life. Notice it with me in verse 6. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that you may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Are you kidding me, Jeremiah? In this pagan culture, in this land of godlessness, you want us to have kids and have families and you want us to grow? And that's exactly what God's word says to them. God is saying, go ahead, establish your families, raise up a godly heritage in a foreign land. I thought about it this week. Procreation as a subversion of paganism procreation as a subversion of paganism there is a tendency in times of fallenness and struggle and conflict to fall back to the castle and draw up the drawbridge jeremiah essentially says here that the best defense is a good offense have kids raise them in godly homes send them into battle for the most high god don't decrease don't, don't settle down here and just sort of fortress yourselves around one another. Increase. Children are a blessing from the Lord. We are responsible to pass on the torch of truth to the next generation. Have a family, a growing family. I can still remember in Nova Scotia sitting down with our our four little ankle biters and people looking at us like we were kind of like freakish or something like that. That was nothing 30 years ago. Four kids is not a big deal. I had a guy in church in Nova Scotia. He was one of nine boys from Cape Breton. And I mean, you know, but that's the mandate here. And if you're not Having children, if you're single or if you're alone or if you're in a different stage of life, the onus is upon you to be involved in ministry to those that are younger. Passing on the torch of truth to the next generation. But the idea is is that we would be equipping one another in this glorious family-like unit, serving the Most High God in all that we do. Our homes and our families ought to be a little slice of heaven a long way from home. Kids are humbling and exhausting. They will mess up your budget. They will cramp your style. They will cause gray hair or your hair will totally fall out. And it will be totally worth it. It will be totally worth it. They're a means of grace that keep us on our knees. They reveal who we are to us. And it's not always pleasant. The Christian home is an adventure the Jewish exiles need to understand that truth. Pilgrim living requires a healthy home life. My darling wife Susie had this magnet in our refrigerator that says, you can't scare me, I have kids. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? So true. Build the city of God, dear ones, where you live. Don't live in isolation. Lean into community. Don't run. Don't hide. Build. Fourthly, and finally this, pilgrim living models robust grace to our neighbors. I think verse 7, for me, is the most fascinating in this letter. Let me read it again. It says, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. This is an incredible statement. God is calling the believing Jews to make their new culture a better place. Improve the quality of life in Babylon. In Babylon, you say, do you know what they did to my country? Do you know what they did to my family? Do you know what they did to my people? And you want me, you want me to pray for their peace? Can you not see towering behind this verse in Jeremiah 29, Jesus Christ in the gospel? Love your enemies. Pray for those who deceitfully use you. Looming up behind this verse for these ancient Jews was this. Love your enemies. Care for your enemies. Don't you be a baby in Babylon. You love the folks around you. Don't you be a troublemaker. You be a peacemaker. You bless the town. If we were locating it in our lang- language today, we might say it this way. Be a blessing in our community. Clean up the park. Coach Little League. if You don't have games on Sunday. Bake cookies. Pray. This is all the mandate that God has given to us. Remember, we mingle grace and truth. If we're going to be effective in this, it will mean that we are winsome. You've heard the expression, you have to be winsome to win some. Ha ha. You have to be winsome to win some. Sometimes you meet believers, man, and it's like, wow. Can you not tell people you go to this church? Because frankly, you're cranky. You're just cranky. You should come. Jesus is great. Changed your life. You're kidding me. The people of God ought to be filled with joy. And I'm not talking about a sappy sentimentalism or some plastic put-on thing. When it reverberates in your heart that you were a sinner condemned and undone before a holy God. And he sent his son to take your place on the cross of Calvary. That payment has been made so that you can be forever whole and forever home with him. There's joy in that. C.S. Lewis says that joy is a serious business of heaven. And it ought to be the serious business of God's people. You see the glorious one rising up in this ancient letter when he calls them to love their enemies. There's an interesting passage in the Gospels. When Jesus talks to his followers when he says this, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. And I, I kind of think that that was a little bit of this exile experience for the ancient Jews. I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. What do you call sheep among wolves? Well, I call them dinner, all right? That's what you would typically call them. Unless the sheep are really really close to the shepherd that's the demand of god upon our lives we get really close to the shepherd who the good shepherd the chief shepherd the great shepherd and is staying really close to the shepherd God arranges the way that we live. He allows us, he enables us to make our way safely from, and here's another Pilgrim's Progress illustration, he allows us to make it safely from the city of destruction to the celestial city. I close with this. The RMS Queen Mary was commissioned in 1936. She was massive, displacing twice the tonnage of the Titanic. She was the most awe-inspiring, ocean-going vessel in the world. Her 12 decks could carry around 2,000 passengers. She had a crew of around 1,100. She was luxurious, the beautiful queen of the high seas, a playground for the rich and famous. But all that changed in 1939 at the start of World War II. Once war was declared, the Queen Mary and other ocean liners were sent to Sydney, Australia, and converted into troop ships. Her beauty was hidden under the navy gray paint. Inside, stateroom furniture and decorations were removed and replaced with triple-tiered wooden bunks. Six miles of carpet, 220 cases of china, crystal and silver service, tapestries and paintings were removed and stored in warehouses for the duration of the war. The woodwork in the staterooms and the dining rooms were covered with leather. Queen Mary, along with her sister ship, the Queen Elizabeth, were the fastest and largest troop ships involved in the war, often carrying as many as as 15,000 troops and sometimes 16,000 men in a single voyage. At almost 30 knots, she would travel unescorted and out of convoy, and her great speed made it difficult for any U-boats to ever catch her. It is said that even Hitler offered a massive reward and the Iron Cross to any U-boat captain who could sink her. They began calling the Queen Mary the Grey Ghost. She would eventually convey three-quarters of a million of troops across the Atlantic. What a testimony of traveling usefulness, pouring troops into Europe to battle an evil empire. And the wartime story of the Queen Mary reminds me that the church must remember its mandate. We are in a struggle for souls. We serve God on foreign territory, and there is no place for opulence or ease. The church must regain its wartime footing, or it must maintain its wartime footing, because we are in a journey far from home, and there is no room for complacency. We're not a cruise ship, folks. We're a troop ship. We're training and equipping people to make the leap from the city of destruction to the celestial city. We're a people far from home, but we are not left without our high and holy calling. We must live with spiritual clarity. We're reminded of the necessity of practical stewardship. We understand the critical nature of the Christian home and family, and we are robustly, gloriously gracious to our neighbors. This is a good word from home. It stirs up my spirit, and I hope it instructs yours as well. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thousands of years ago, a letter is written to ancient Jewish exiles. We're reading it today and savoring it. And realizing that it is absolutely necessary for us. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for the passion of this past week with VBS. Father, I thank you for the, the love that was shown. I thank you for the energy that was exerted. I, I thank you for the things that were given and done. And Father, for the truth that was broadcast, for the things that we're thinking about that we never thought about before last week. Father, I pray that the seed of the gospel would find lodging in young lives. We rejoice in those that, that made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this might be a place of discipleship and truthing and love. We ask for your help, Lord. We're in a world mined by the enemy. And, Father, we want to live with all the fire of our faith. And so help us, Lord God. Help your people. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The final...